Welcome back to all you K2H listeners. And if you hadn't tuned in earlier or you missed parts of it, I am talking to Susan Liu here, who is a Vietnamese American playwright, performer, and author, telling stories that refuse to be forgotten. And yes, we're pushing against things that want to be erased, sometimes because it's too painful, sometimes it's because people want to shut it down, like especially, you know, we want to talk about these intergenerational tensions, um, particularly from immigrant families and the American born generation still struggling to communicate ideas and how do you, how do you reach those, the compromise in, in the way you approach life, you know, because like you said earlier, the whole immigrant family thing is just the struggle to survive and to work hard so that the younger generation doesn't have to do what they did, right? I always thought that that was a thing of the past because like in my my family, you know, my mom's already, she was born and bred in San Francisco. So I'm already like second, third generation, right? Um, and then I think, okay, well, how does the third or fourth generation think about this? But there's such a recent um, focus on, immigrant Asians in light of the anti-Asian hate violences. And I wanted to connect the two because something about the way we say that the older generation or the more immigrant generation are so protective or um, for lack of better word, kind of not communicative because you say that too, you know, like how we try to keep things to ourselves and we don't share personal problems the way that Americanized people would. Um, how do these immigrant tensions with the Americans kind of speak to what we're dealing with today on a kind of a racial scale, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, first off, I, I just want to say in terms of our elders and 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 their difference in communication. You know, you can see that as a form of withholding. You can see that as a form of like, like maybe is it their own denial? And and I just want to clarify that everyone is operating the in the best way that they can and with the privilege and the access to resources that they have. So the older generation um, might not have the capacity to share because once they release that trauma, what do they do with it? And what kind of support are they going to get with it? Yeah. Right. So. So there's something around like, oh my God, why don't we express feelings? Why can't we talk about the past? Why can't I carry on the past stories? Like, why won't you tell me this, right? The younger generation's so hungry and wants it. And then is it because they just don't want to? Or is it because they're protecting a part of them and, and they don't have that privilege and access to those resources of how to do this in a really healthy way? Because mental health is so stigmatized. So I just want to put that out there and put that on the table. And so because there is a minimal display of feelings around things, right? Because you can say, hey, you know, it's it's also seen as very anti-Confucian to talk about you as an individual and you as your feelings and making it about you. And that's selfish, right? Like that goes against huge generational upbringing, right? So it's like the first thing here is there's just a difference and the difference is um, cultural and it, it comes from actually a quite respectful place. I don't think it comes from a place of wanting to withhold and to be mean. So I just want to put that out there. Now, 
in, in going to your question about racial tension and all that, it's just like, well, if we do not express our feelings and our stories, we are not fully seen. We're only seen in the way that has been shared. And so in America, if I can speak about America, it's like, as being a Vietnamese American, what have I seen on stage that is about being Vietnamese? Unfortunately, I can only point to so many few titles and one of them yep. is Miss Saigon. Yep. <laughs> Where, it, who's, whose gaze is it? It is the white man's gaze mm-hmm. of what Vietnamese women, what their value is and what they're seen as. And so, and it's essentially being subservient. Sexualized. Yes. And so when we look at the Atlanta spa shootings, what was the media's immediate response? It was to, to center the shooter, the white shooter, and, and that he had an illness. And it's like, wait a minute, what about these victims yeah. that are family members that contribute so much in their communities? Like, why are we not presenting them as multifaceted human beings? Mm-hmm. Case in point, the Colorado shootings that followed right afterwards immediately within hours each victim was profiled yeah one person really liked making halloween costumes and i'm like okay that's really wonderful but how can how can we not acknowledge what just happened somewhere else followed by a, a shooting like yeah why are we so one-dimensional yeah and so it's because of that we are are trying to just push up against the, the this entire just um system of being able to express our feelings and actually being represented and showcased in society as multifaceted human beings because it's so easy that when i'm one-dimensional it's easy to put me in a yes or no category there's no room for that opaqueness like yes i understand it happened at these spas i understand that and i understand that's controversial versus a grocery store but at the same time no why yeah. it's not a life as as important as another life right mm-hmm. And so when we're reduced to that, and when we grow up in our household where our elders are not modeling, actively modeling direct communication and expressing feelings, what do we feel empowered to do? And also what does society offer us as opportunities to express ourselves, Hmm. right? Hollywood's so white, everything, all these institutions are so white. They've been facing this reckoning of, oh, wow, like, are we actually representative of America? And so what do we do? Which, now that you're saying Hollywood, you know, with, with Chloe Zhao winning the Oscars, do you think that's just gonna be like this one token idea that people say, okay, we tick that diversity box and we can move on now. Do you think there's any shift in movement in the right direction? Or this is just kind of a phase that we think we're trying to in light of today's uh, vocalization of Asian Americans that we need to have representation. Is it going to disappear before we even finish this interview? I mean, you know, I mean, you wonder why is there attention? Is it white guilt? You know, is it, was it a courtesy win? I, I mean, she put on some amazing work and I'm so glad she won. And, but I want to acknowledge that Hollywood is a business and constantly the, the funders, those who have access to capital, are making bets. Mm-hmm. So the more Chloe's that win, the more crazy rich Asians that hit the box office, gold, gold house doing these gold opens, like the more you can show it's financially lucrative, because that's actually, you know, that's what yeah, they're doing. That's true. 
yeah. then it, it becomes the chicken and the egg and it'll create more work for more people to react to. And eventually, like the Ten Wing says, we will have narrative plentitude. We will just have so many stories that it's okay. Like you don't have to feel like I'm the one Asian, I get the one chance. And if I mess it up, I mess it up for us forever. You know, like why do we even have to live with that type of pressure? White people don't have that pressure. Like if I put myself out there, will I ruin it for my entire race? And unfortunately, I we're not at narrative plenitude for Asian Americans. We're not there yet. You know, and and I and I think there's forward momentum. There's been a racial reckoning within America. I mean, everyday Americans have new types of language to mm. talk about. Like so it's not just the social justice crowd pushing yeah. equity. Yeah. Right. It's it's I see a transformation in terms of just, um, I, I, I guess I, what I'm trying to say is a few years ago, it felt like having a sign that says Black Lives Matter was kind of controversial. Like it felt like almost too far left. Mm -hmm. And then now it's it's been normalized where it's like, that is a very humane statement to say. Right. When we saw so many people marching, everyday folks that don't, that weren't necessarily the typical protesters. Yeah. Like I see, I don't think we can undo that shift in consciousness. So, so no, I, I, I don't think, you know, what happened with Chloe is just like a point in time. And, you know, when we look at Joy Luck Club, we go the last time yeah. Asian Americans were all in a movie was 25 years ago. Like, is it going to be another 25? I don't think so. I, I think Asian Americans are organizing more. Uh, philanthropists are getting together more and forming the Asian American foundation. Um, there's more, uh, visibility, I would say, and um, connection amongst the Asian American, all the different groups and partnerships, especially during the pandemic, people have been coming together for a common cause. Um, and, and those those bonds are being made. So even if it becomes less trendy yeah. to feature and fund, I think internally as Asian Americans, we're coming together to realize, mm. oh, actually us supporting each other's work is lifting us all up. You know, like I, it, I, I remember, so I have a chocolate company. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause I, <laughs> what does that mean? Sure. Uh, so Sokola Chocolatier, Sokola means chocolate in Vietnamese. I started this company with my sister 20 years ago. We have a storefront in San Francisco mm. and we have flavors like, Where is it? Where is it? Uh, it's in Soma. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so we have like flavors like durian and jasmine tea, sriracha, pho, all chocolate truffles. Pho flavored chocolate. That's right whoa like what does that mean <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's you know it, i mean it has star anise and cardamom and it's savory and it's so we have this this box called the little saigon box so it's a, a four course meal in nine flavors so check that out okay. but but what i'm trying to say here is i would say about 10 years ago when we were really trying to figure out the arc and the identity of our brand we would ha we had flavors like guava and Vietnamese coffee, but we were always like, oh, we should really have the Western flavors, like show we can do it well, like burnt caramel with sea salt. Okay, stout beer. Okay, great. We we can show that we have the craftsmanship, but was the market ready mm. for Asian flavors? And I'm going to say no, it wasn't. We were keeping at it, keeping at it, keeping at it. And in, in the last five years, there there's been, I'm going to say Asian Americans are feeling more proud to be who they are and they're owning their identity and they're celebrating it instead of hiding away from it and trying to be in the likeness of the 
white male gaze of what was seen as important or successful or powerful. So I just feel like there's just a big shift happening. And, and I don't think you can undo that shift. Um, it is still about investment. And so constantly we're investing with our dollars. So whatever product you decide to buy, you know, is it women owned? Is it LGBTQ owned? Is it Asian owned? Like who, who do you want to support? Right. And that's with your products and that's with your entertainment and, and, Honestly, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, they're looking at their numbers all the time. It's still a business. And so you're actually voting with your dollars and your eyeballs all the time. Do you think that's the Asian side of you to have that capacity to think of that business impact on the work that's being produced out there? Or I don't know, I just feel like you have such a brilliant balance between um, doing your art while seeing the bigger structure and how things work and recognizing your position and how you can push through things and yet still seeing what's lacking, you know? Because going back to you as a theater maker, that is a very small, okay, so it's a very specific platform, right? You can only have so many people. Yes, virtually you can bring more in, but 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 because of your, the specific nature in your um, content, do you, do you ever feel compelled to go, like, what does it mean to, reach a broader audience what do you sacrifice in that effort if you think that's important to get more people more eyeballs on the topic you're addressing or to stay true to what you want to say specifically about your mom and your relationships and family you know how, how do you kind of negotiate the two yeah i mean so there's two things here one is i grew up watching my parents run the nail salon yeah right and so it's about the refugee hustle and it's about making something out of nothing Right. And, and, and so for me, for me to create this work, it was, I saw it as a startup. I start, I saw the theater work doing different iterations of the show as proofs of concept. And when I did the world premiere of 140 pounds, as you see it today in February, 2019, it stuck. It was awesome. I, I could see what was happening to the audience. Um, and also I knew that that was the story I wanted to tell and how I wanted to tell it. And since then I've performed the show in person and virtually to about 7,000 people. And I did that 10 city nationwide tour and, and I, I produced it myself, right? Because I was like, if I wait in line and wait for theaters to present me, they plan their season so far in advance, it was gonna take two or three years. And for me at that time, I decided to go all in to be a full-time artist and I needed to make that money now. So for me, I had to do the nationwide tour on my own and fund it myself. Wow. It was profitable, but that was the only way I was going to get the work out faster into more people. Good thing I found a lit agent along the way. We worked on the book proposal and and now I got a book deal from Macmillan and, and wait, I'm gonna- wait, wait, wait. Let's tease people. Let's let's take a quick break and come back and tell me all about this this book thing, okay? People who are tuning in, we're talking to Susan Liu about her uh, work um, about 140 pounds. This is this brilliant play and this book. Okay, we're going to talk about your book. Don't go away. <laughs> 